Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Steve Asawa continues our series in Hebrews, sharing from Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 22. And now, here's Steve. Good morning. Thank you, David and Dickie. I'm not sure what else to say after that. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go and visit the Hockey Hall of Fame. It's really neat to go in there and they've got all these pictures, uh, all these kind of captions and stories about how the the game has developed over time. You see the, the greatest players, or at least the ones that people have chosen to be the greatest players going over the years, and the Stanley Cup was there. At least, uh, I think it was the real Stanley Cup. I think they probably tell everybody it was the real Stanley Cup, and it just happened to be there the day you showed up. It's pretty interesting to see all these these great people, and look back over time, hear, see, and read about all these great people. And I don't know if any of you have ever had a chance to go to some Hall of Fame, there's one for all various sports. I think there's some for entertainment, for musicians. Uh, I'm not sure. We, we might even have a, a little one here in Timmins for our own local uh, things. But this morning, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11 in verses 8 to 22. If you have your Bibles with me, I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews. Actually, we're going to start at chapter 10. And then we'll also be going back and forth in that uh, Book of Genesis for a bit. Hebrews 11 is like the Bible's Hall of Fame, or perhaps it's better referred to as the Hall of Faith. As such, the message this morning might be entitled, Moving Forward in Faith. Just before we get to the passage in chapter 11 this morning, the writer had warned the readers about the danger of falling away of not persevering. Reading from Hebrews 10, verse 36. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Now faith is confidence in what we have in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. With that context, let's just look at our passage. Eleven verse eight. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was unable to bear children because she, con- she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky 
and countless that the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau regarding their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Before we get into the passages, let's open with a word of prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, I just pause and marvel that the God who created and sustains this universe created and sustains ones like us. It's just so amazing. But I just thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your Son to come to this earth for us. Thank you for your word and for your spirit. And Father, I just pray that as we open up your word again this morning, you would just guide us all, open our hearts and our minds to whatever it is you want us to learn and apply to our lives, that you would receive the honor and the glory. We just ask this in the precious name of Jesus. So, our passage starts with the faith of the great patriarch Abraham. If you look through the Bible, you'll see Abraham scattered references and stories about Abraham throughout both the Old Testament and you can see references to Abraham in the New Testament. David read about God's direction for Abraham in his response in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to reread a few of the verses. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And then, so there's the command, and in verse 4 we have his, what his response was. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with them. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So Abraham was open to hearing what God's instructions were for him. And there's absolutely no hesitation in his response. So just as God is saying, Abraham, I want you to go, he's saying, absolutely, yes, sir. Abraham and Sarah 
were initially on their way from Ur to Canaan with his father Terah, Abraham's father Terah. But they stopped and lived in this place called Haran. And it was a Mesopotamian city, and it was famous for its worship of the moon god. And it was an important place of commerce there, and probably by those ends, a pretty decent place to live. And Abraham, as we saw, Abraham, as we saw, followed without knowing what the full plan would look like. He didn't know much more other than he's going to Canaan. It must have been really interesting to hear the conversation. Sorry, honey. We need to pack up things. We're moving. Oh, okay, dear, if you say so. When's the moving caravan coming? Oh, it's here now. Oh, okay. Where are we going? Somewhere in Canaan. I don't know exactly where. Oh, okay, well, why now? We just got settled in Haran. We've got all our things together now. Uh, we're starting to get our roots down. Because God told me to. So I'm going. Okay, sounds good to me too. From what we saw in the Genesis account, Abraham was probably living a pretty comfortable life in Haran. He gave this up, however, to live as a stranger in a foreign country, living in tents instead of a house. He didn't own any of the land that he was traveling through. And he lived this lifestyle, however, because as we see in verse 10, he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. As we see later, both in this chapter and the next, the writer is talking about a different home that's not of this world. He's talking about a heavenly Jerusalem. And interestingly, God told Abraham that he and his offspring would be sojourners in a land they didn't own for 400 years. Hmm. That's different timing from what we normally have, isn't it? But also that they would be servants in this land and that they would be afflicted. And you start thinking about it. When you start thinking about it, you think, oh, he could have turned around and just said, ooh, that doesn't sound so good. I'm going back to Ur or going back to Haran. But he didn't. In Genesis chapter 8, sorry, chapter 18, we're told how three men came and told Abraham that about this time the following year, his wife Sarah would have a son. And this was a few years after they had gone over to Canaan. So Sarah was probably about 89 years old at the time. And when she heard it, she kind of laughed at herself. And I think most of us would have the same reaction, right? Are you serious? No, you're kidding, right? And this seems to contradict what we read in verse 11, which says, And by faith, even Sarah, who is past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because... She considered him faithful who had made the promise. So at some point, Sarah had come to trust in God's ability to do what he said. She realized that God's power surpasses everything and there's nothing impossible with God. Her initial skeptical laughter eventually became a joyful, celebratory laughter after her son Isaac was born. Verse 13 tells us, all of these people, the people that were mentioned here, the people that were mentioned earlier in the chapter, died in faith, not having received the things promised, 
God keeps his promises, but his timing isn't the same as what we often expect, is it? Abraham and Sarah had, just as God promised, many, many descendants. They just weren't around to see them all. Actually, it's interesting that Linda reminded me that he should have seen them all because we had the pleasure of going to Israel a few years ago and we met Abraham. He was still there. So I'm not sure why he didn't meet all his descendants. Now the Jewish nation draws its lineage from their son Isaac, Abraham's son. The Gospel of Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're told they, that is those who died in the faith, acknowledged they are strangers and exiles on earth. It was critical, therefore, that people kept looking for, towards the future homeland, the heavenly city God has prepared for them. Their focus on that long-term heavenly goal kept them from going back to the comfortable and familiar places from which they came. So for them, the spiritual goal was far more important than those temporary material um, material things of the world. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. God even referred to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I think the Hebrew believers were experiencing something similar. In putting their trust in Jesus, they had turned away from the familiar practices which they grew up with. Many of these things being taught in the synagogues no longer resonated with them. They didn't fit into Jewish society the way they used to. It's safe to say they're experiencing many tough challenges and needed to rely on their newfound faith in Jesus. And the writer is exhorting them to follow the example of these people who kept moving forward in faith. And the writer also noted in chapter 3 how the Israelites had wandered in the desert in a sense like strangers and aliens. However, in this case, their wandering and their being strangers and aliens was because of their disobedience, their lack of faith. And of them all, none save two, Joshua and Caleb, were allowed to enter the promised land. We can probably think of many examples in our lives where we need to be looking forward instead of down at our feet right in front of us. So, question for those young people out there, and maybe for some of us older ones as well. And by the way, please don't shout out any answers. Uh, you might have to just nod your head or kind of point up or down. When you're riding your bikes, where do you look when you're riding a bike? Are you looking up or are you looking down at that wheel? Around? Around? Forward? Where are those young people with the bikes? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so some of them looking down, some of them looking forward. Do you look up? If you, for those who look down, do you look up once in a while? Maybe to make sure that you're going to hit the jump? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think you probably need to look down once in a while. But what happens if you never look up? Anyone ever dri- driven into something by mistake because they weren't watching where they were going? Mm-hmm. A few of us? 
Can you get to the store and back on your bike if you never look up? Any here have scooters or skateboards? None, none that want to admit it anymore? And for some of the other ones, where do you focus your eyes when you're driving the vehicle? Trust is not on the cell phone. How many people here have heard those in the financial world saying, you know, you need to stick to your long-term goal, especially in these uncertain times? So my point is, if we know that we need to look forward and be looking up in the little things of life, how much more do we need to be looking forward and looking up in the important things, the spiritual things, the things of God? So Abraham and Sarah finally have their son Isaac, the one from whom God promised his offspring would be named. In Genesis 22 we read, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son Isaac, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. And again, we don't know what Abraham thought when God told him this. I think he must have been scratching his head a little bit. But we do know Abraham obeyed. The Bible tells us, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. As they get closer, Abraham and Isaac go on by themselves. Genesis 22, 7 says, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering, my son. So they went off, both of them together. When they came to the place to which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood on it in order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, interesting, been thought that Isaac probably wasn't a young boy at this time. He was probably a young man, likely in his 20s, maybe even his 30s. And kind of guessing that you know, if he really wanted, didn't want to be sacrificed, he probably could have resisted and Abraham would have had a hard time binding him and putting him on top of that wood. But he allows it to happen. And then an angel of the Lord intervenes, and Abraham notices that there's a ram caught in a thicket, and he sacrifices that instead. So Abraham calls the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As is said on this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So back to a passage in Hebrews in verse 19. He, that is Abraham, considered God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham had absolute confidence in God's power. How else could he and Sarah have had a son in the first place? He also had absolute trust in God's promises, that even though it seemed strange, he obeyed. Abraham was directed to sacrifice Isaac Moriah, this location is significant because it's also the place where the, uh, the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, 
and you may remember that that was the place where the angel of the Lord was meeting out punishment for something King David did, and it stopped at that threshing floor. King David purchased it, and as directed by the angel, he built an altar, and he offered sacrifices to the Lord there. This mount is also significant, because this is where Solomon built the temple for the Lord. It's where the Ark of the Covenant rested. It's where they had sacrifices to God. Jesus was crucified near this location. As we've seen earlier in Hebrews, he is both priest in the order of Melchizedek, and we learned that he was the perfect sacrifice. In verses 20 to 22, we see how the people of faith finished strong. Their faith didn't waver as they approached death. And they held to God's promises right till the end of their earthly lives. And blessing their sons is an example of this. When Isaac was nearing death, Rebekah convinced Jacob to pretend he was his older brother Esau and tricked Isaac into giving, granting him the blessing intended for his older brother. This was, however, what God had intended in the first place, and it was, that it was through Jacob that the promises would be fulfilled. Jacob, in turn, blesses his son Joseph and his grandsons Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons that Joseph had in Egypt. And in doing so, he crosses arms when he was blessing his grandsons, and he blessed he gave more prominence to the younger than the older. And again, that wasn't the way it was supposed to be in those in those days. But again, that was God's leading. Joseph lived most of his life in Egypt. He had power, prestige, and whatever material things he could possibly desire. However, the spiritual promises that God had made were far more important to him than the material success. When Joseph was nearing death, he noted he wanted his bones taken back out of Egypt. He had faith that one day God would rescue his people from that land of Egypt and take them to that promised land, the land that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what does this mean for us? Each of the people in this passage has very different personalities, very different character traits. And perhaps you can relate more to one person or trait than another. For example, when you read about Abraham, you get the impression of this larger-than-life man. Someone's going to take charge if needed. Sarah exhibited faith in, in trusting God's power for her to have a child at old age. And he trusted she needed his power to keep up with that child, and she did have it. Isaac grew up, grew up seeing his father live out his faith and knew how committed his father was to God. How could he ever forget that his dad was willing to sacrifice him when God told him to? From what we read about Isaac, it seems that he's a bit more introverted than his father was. I like that trait. I'm not sure if I've mentioned it before. One of uh, my co-workers at the office has a little sign out by his cubicle wall that says, Introverts Unite. <laughs> and that says, Separately, of course. Uh, so, maybe that's why some of us find the social distancing rules a little easier than others. Jacob was a younger brother who offered better sacrifice than Esau. He followed a shepherd's life. Jacob wrestled with God. Joseph comes across as that proverbial boy scout. He could have used a little tact and discussion when he was younger, especially when he was telling his older brothers about his dreams. But the Bible shows he possessed a strong moral character and was a diligent worker. 
He's given the gift to interpret dreams, at least for a period of time. And he was so trustworthy, and he was eventually put in charge of all of Pharaoh's possessions. Now, if you're thinking you could never be as good as any one of these people, there is hope. Because none of them were perfect. They all had missteps. They all failed. For example, we know that Sarah and Abraham took matters into their own hands when they weren't having that child. And then when her handmaid, her maiden did have a child, she treated her badly. Abraham told people that his wife was his sister, not once, but twice, because he was afraid what might happen to him if the other people realized she was his wife. Isaac did the same thing his father did. He too said, she's my sister, when he was talking about his wife, because he was afraid it wouldn't happen to him. We talked about the fact that Jacob conspired with his mother to steal his father his father's blessing. So none of them were perfect either. And from what we read in the Bible, some of the families, Isaac's for example, was pretty dysfunctional. So thankfully we don't have to be part of a perfect family to follow God. And what's important through all this though, it's not about their failings or their shortcomings, but it's about their faith. While they experienced God in different ways, it's their faith that made them right with God, and it's their faith that saved God. These people were focused on the heavenly city and realized that spiritual matters, especially spiritual inheritance, is far more important than the temporary material things of life. They realized that God would provide what they needed. And they were willing to follow God's leading and put their faith into action. Each of these people demonstrated their faith through those actions. And like them, we too were lost before we knew God. That's why he sent his son Jesus to this earth, isn't it? Jesus rose from the grave and he conquered death and made it possible for each of us to be rescued, so to speak, from the punishment that we really deserve for our deeds. He's the rescuer for those who have faith or sorry, through faith, put our trust in Jesus. We've been rescued from an eternity in hell, an eternity separated from God. We need to be listening for God's directions to know when he's asking something of us. Are we spending time with him, meditating on his word, enjoying time in his presence, waiting for him to reveal himself to and for us? Are we open to following his leading? Or do we get so focused on knowing all the details that we don't respond to his calling? As the psalmist said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and light unto my path. It's not full sunlight, like if you went outside today with a drone flying ahead so you can visualize the whole journey. It's a step at a time in faith. So, in closing, we've seen some great examples of faith in our passage this morning. Our job is to go forward in faith focused on that heavenly city above and let God deal with the material aspects. We do have to do some work though. You may have heard the expression so heavenly minded, no earthly good. We're not to be like that. We're to put our faith into action each and every day. And it doesn't have to be flashy. It doesn't have to be something really big like some of these people did. God's family is made up of different people 
with different gifts and talents, and we have different roles. And God is honored where people seek to live for Him and use their gifts and talents that they be given in whatever form that may be. We may stumble and fail at times, but God can deal with that. He wants us to dust ourselves off and keep following Him strong to the end until we get to that place He's prepared for us. Heavenly Father, again, we just talk, we just thank you for your goodness and love. We thank you that Jesus came to rescue us. And I pray, Father, that nobody leaves here without having put their trust and their faith in Jesus. Father, I just pray that you would help us all just to move forward in faith, to follow you more closely, to be listening for your word, and to just keep our focus on that heavenly city that is ahead. And looking forward to that time when one day we'll be there with you. Father, we just thank you again for this day and for all your goodness and love. And we pray that you would just be close to you and that you would get the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.